1: The meta-crisis is the multifaceted delusion arising from the spiritual and material exhaustion of modernity. Crisis is actually a structural feature of modernity. In other words, the whole idea of the modern world, how it was built, was one crisis after the other. Crisis followed by solution, crisis followed by solution. This is how the political economy and powers that be mobilized themselves. But then what we're facing today is a sense of modernity ending. And then the question is, where does it end?
2: I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is WILD, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Over the course of the 100-plus episodes of WILD, we've covered a pretty full gamut of crises facing the world today. The rise in generalised AI, the climate crisis, of course, Transhumanism, the collapse of critical and nuanced thinking, the sense making and meaning crises, our crashing into planetary boundaries and growth limits. The list goes on and on. But there's what you might call a school of thought, a loose collective of thinkers who focus on what is now being called the metacrisis, which is the bigger, more fundamental, you might say, crisis behind or above or at the root of all of the crises. And it's the crisis of our inability to fathom and solve all of the problems that we've created. And it's the awareness of all of this at the same time that we've kind of fucked things up and can't evolve fast enough to save ourselves from ourselves. One of the brightest minds in this weird little subworld of thinkers, not all of whom I'm aligned with, is Jonathan Rowson. Jonathan Rowson is an intimidatingly bright human being. He's a chess grandmaster and has been for 20 years. A chess grandmaster, I've learned, is a lifelong title awarded to the best 1,000 or so chess players in the world. He's also a theoretical psychologist and has various degrees in or has studied or published papers on the brain, philosophy, spirituality, economics, and education. He has a PhD from Harvard in what it means to become wiser, was director of the Social Brain Centre at the Royal Society of Arts. He has performed complex collective action problem solving for the Open Society Foundation, a sort of massive global organisation dealing in human rights. And he's run events with David Attenborough and Jordan Peterson, although not on the same stage at the same time, obviously. He's currently a fellow at a place called the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey, and he runs Perspectiva, a research institute that seeks to understand the relationship between systems, souls, and society, which is how I first came across Jonathan's work. Jonathan's also written a bunch of books that work to similar themes, i.e. solving complex problems, including spiritualise, cultivating spiritual sensibility to address 21st century challenges, and the moves that matter, a chess grandmaster on the game of life. I could talk with Jonathan on a range of subjects, but we'll try today to narrow things down to this wild idea of the metacrisis, which is kind of everything all at once anyway. I've touched on this idea of the metacrisis in previous episodes, where we have discussed sense-making with David Fuller and a little more recently with Indigenous systems thinker Tyson Yunker-Porter, and I'll put the links to these episodes in the show notes. The meta crisis framework is an intriguing one for understanding and having compassion for where I think many of us are at today, stumbling around, wondering how we got here and where the meaning of it all lies. This is both a confronting but somehow settling conversation. And just a quick note before we kick off, because somehow it is relevant, given my guest today, Jonathan, is in fact British. The UK edition of This One Wild and Precious Life is now available for pre-order, and I'll put the link in the show notes once again. But you can get hold of it at the Waterstones and the Amazon websites, I believe. I write about many of the themes that we discuss in this episode in the book, including the meta crisis. And so you might find it a good companion for for this episode. And I should say that when you pre-order a book from an author, it does set us up for, well, for a bit of success because stores then will order extra copies and a momentum builds. Anyway, thanks for hearing me out on all of that. Let's get to the interview. Jonathan Rowson, thank you so much for joining me on Wild. I'm not sure where to dive in, how to dive into this conversation. <laughs> I suspect it's going to be a roving one. But why don't we start with your love of chess? Perhaps you could explain to us why or how you first got into it.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's lovely to be here. And I suppose with chess, I could say I, I really owe the game not quite everything my mother would object to that but i, I certainly owe the game a lot my, my life was shaped by it it's in many ways defined me and yet it's not a big part of my day-to-day life today so it's a little bit of a story i learned to learn the moves like any other child when i was quite young i think i was and then i played with my brother in my family my brother mark And then later some other family members my uncles aunties so on i played at school and then one day i started to notice i was getting reasonably good and i I got spotted for a local competition, which I won, got selected for the Scottish team. One thing led to another. And then around about the age of 10, 11, there was a lot of things happening in my family life. My father had mental illness, schizophrenia, and my you know, the marriage broke down. And I was a young child trying to make sense of the world, whose world had just kind of fallen apart. And around that time, too young to really talk through one's emotions, but chess acted as a means of sublimation, as a means of channeling the emotions through the game. I found there a world that made sense, a world where my efforts were rewarded, where if I applied myself, I got this extraordinary feedback that things worked, things made sense, a world that had its own rules that, where you could predict what would happen. And that stayed with me. That sort of feeling of chess as escape, chess as therapy, chess as a way to understand myself make sense of the world around me. And I I got lucky along the way with some good teachers, and I I once won a big book prize, which won, won me lots of chess books. And slowly but surely, I became a grandmaster, and I was a British champion for three years. I worked with the world champion, Vishwanathan Anand. I was never as good as him, but I was good enough to at least help him in some way. And yeah, it was a huge thing. And then somewhere around the age of give or take 30, I suddenly felt the appetite was dwindling a bit. Still loved the game, still good at it, and by around the, when I was becoming a father in my sort of mid to late thirties, I suddenly felt I'm not sure I can do this anymore. The game was still fabulously interesting, but it no longer felt really important. It no longer felt like where the world was at. You no longer felt where the where the action was, and so I gradually said goodbye to the game. And I wrote about this in a book called The Moves That Matter, which is about the journey I've just described. So that's a quick intro. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you've written quite extensively on how chess can be, or the the mindset of a chess player can be applied to problem solving and various things. And I know you've said that it simulates the conditions for a life of meaning, which I find really interesting. Could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Well, chess is often understood as a sort of mini world. It's, It's bounded in the way the earth or the universe is bounded although the universe arguably isn't bounded but it's got this kind of sense of you're within something you're in you're in a kind of universe and it has rules like life has rules laws of physics or whatever and then there are guidelines about how one ought to live which are kind of like an ethics of some kind and then there's the opponent who is this constant source of friction resistance getting in your way just like life gets in your way and you can't always achieve what you want Um, and in that context the meaning is made by the relationship between your your mind and the game so you've got the kind of sense of what you want to happen and then the constraints of the context and the opponent's competing desires and through that you come to sort of want and desire things and care for things like you you might passionately desire to possess a certain square on the board now that can seem a bit odd because it's so abstract and so unworldly and yet it represents some a real emotional need and it's just that chess gives you a kind of capacity to experience it i think the other thing that's going on here and this applies to sport more generally but maybe even more intensely with chess there's something about the construction of mattering i'll say what i mean by that if you think about it almost any sporting contest is turned into something that matters and the more intense it matters the wimbledon final the world cup final the more the spectacle is kind of heightened the more you feel you've really got to watch and that every point kind of counts right what's going on with chess is that the game is created as a like a, a theater or a spectacle for mattering it's a place in your life where what you do matters and that's kind of where meaning comes from the sense that you see your own agency, your own efficacy in the world, and the game gives you that very, very tangibly. There's no weather conditions, there's no referee, there's not there's nothing getting in the way of the relationship between you and the outcome, apart from your opponent. So, yeah, all of those reasons.
2: Mm. You've also talked about the role of concentration. It's you know a defining feature of a fulfilling life. I think you've you've written, and of course, you know that's sort of what you're picking up on there. It's this honing in. It's this focusing of our care and application. And I think in a world where we've got our attention, being grabbed by so many people concentration is is a skill set is a, an aptitude that has been lost and and I think we're feeling it we're really feeling it we we find it so hard to concentrate there's a lot of attention going on but concentration suffers and concentration I think is the more refined aspect of attention it involves will you know and and sort of an almost a moral element because you apply what you care about
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well said. I mean, I I, I wrote a long essay for Eon Magazine uh, about concentration when I I went a bit beyond what I said in the book to try and really understand not just concentration as skill that helps you get through life, but concentration as a kind of intrinsic reward. Concentration as something that we actually love. Concentration as a kind of home, a, a place to be and to feel life most fully. But in order to get there, concentration requires not just When you call it attention the risk is it becomes a very kind of cognitive mechanical kind of notion as if you switched on a light and suddenly you're attending to something concentration is more i called it in that article a kind of coalescence of the self by which i mean you bring together all the parts of your psyche all the parts of your soul your memories the people you care about why you're doing this building your willpower trying to connect your willpower to your attention and then it, it, it's a kind of quality of being. It's a sort of presence of mind that is directed towards something. And it has its own kind of beauty. And when you taste that, you want to go back there. And to be honest, several years now after playing chess professionally, I look at the chess world and I think, really, <laughs> it's like one very elaborate pretext for concentration. It's like People think they're playing because they like their opening variation or they like their attacking or they like their checkmates, whatever. A big part of the attraction is the experience of concentration. And what's beautiful about that socially is that it's it's made for you. You know, this this board, this rule of being quiet, the the clock which sets the time limit, this is kind of like the architecture for concentration to unfold. And yeah, I think really having a fa- places in your life where you can concentrate is harder and harder today. And it's a real problem because unless you can concentrate, in some sense you're not free, you can't really direct your life.
2: Yeah, you pick up on this a lot with the work that you've been doing more recently. I know you've done a lot of interviews and and work with Ian McGilchrist, whose work is just deeply profound and wonderful. And the work that he's done on the left and right sides of the brain and his ideas are quite revolutionary and different to to what a lot of people think about when they think of left and right brain thinking. But it sort of ties into what you're talking about here with chess. On the one hand, you've got that left brain activity where you're honing in and focusing on detail. But then chess also involves an ability to pull back and access that right brain sort of thinking where you can pull back and see what the hell's going on and what matters, and why the hell you're doing it. And also you see yourself as an agent. Do you know what I mean? I am in the act of playing chess with this other person that's sitting across from me. I'm just wondering how important that pulling back is for life today. You know, it's it's a skill set that we've lost, I think, in so many ways because so much of what we do is left brain-centered. It's didactic. It's black and white. It's very much in the minutiae. And I know that myself and many people listening here feel that, you know, that sort of discerning thinking, that that thinking that goes to the heart of why are we all here and what's the bigger picture, it's been lost.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean Ian describes this at length in his books, that there's a relationship between the patterns of attention that we play and, and pay rather and the the way the world kind of unfolds, the way the world manifests. Now, exactly what that relationship is, is is complex. And, you know, he he writes about that in detail. But there's no doubt that the world that we know is constituted in large part by how we pay attention and what we pay attention to. What you describe is true about the need to back up, see the big picture, get things in perspective and context. However, while it's true, there's something I'd add to it, which is that I think what Ian's work describes is also a kind of it's both left and right in a, in a non-trivial way. And Ian's always very keen to impress upon people that he's nothing against the left hemisphere, right? Because the, the way this plays out in the public conversations that I've been part of is that people get down on the intellect. They say, all oh, this tension to detail, all this focusing in, it's the part of the problem. And I think that's not quite the argument. The argument is that doing that without the sense of mattering purpose, context, perspective is a kind of, Mm, Delusion—it's detached from reality. That the orientation you want towards the world is something more like a what I call them the Gilchrist maneuver. Ian finds it funny; he humours me with this. But the way to see it is that ideally, you your natural state of attention is a kind of showing up to something, a kind of presencing. This is this is what's happening here. This is what's this is the situation. It's a kind of broad, vigilant awareness. Of everything that's going on you're taking it all in checking it all out but then at some point you have to do something with that context and so you zoom in you get this capacity to whether it's a word or an apple or a tree or you know whatever it is you zoom in and then the key is okay now that you zoomed in what are you going to do then you back out again right the distinction between the left and right hemisphere it's important to understand that it's a kind of a illusion of consciousness that we have one seamless pattern of attention what's really going on is these two things are constantly in play that we're both we're zooming in and out all the time but we don't really notice it and ian's point i think it's a point that's now widely shared is that our culture is becoming sick partly because it's it's zooming in but not zooming out it's not that it's wrong to zoom in it's that it's wrong not to take a sense of context perspective purpose as you zoom in and then it's important to look at the particularity of the thing because that's what that's what you get when you really pay attention not to see everything as a kind of version of something else so this is why we call attention a, mor- a moral act that's the that's the the language we use in the series with ian that actually how you attend to the world shapes the world that's brought into being
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful line. And I've become familiar with it from listening to your various discussions with Ian over the last sort of three three to four months. I don't want to stay on the chess stuff for too much longer, but there is a a move or a chess dilemma that I think actually leads us into the main part of our discussion today. It's called, is it the Zooksfang?
1: Zuxfang, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Zuck's fun, a German word, of course. Yeah, you'd be familiar with it because it's a it's a common one or it's a, a common dilemma, a particularly tricky dilemma in chess. And from what I gather, it's where you, it's your move. So you have to move, but there's no good move available to you. And I think in many ways, it sums up where many of us feel we are at in the world today. You know, we feel that there's no right move that we can make. It feels like we've exhausted all of the options. And I'm wondering if you can explain how chess might provide an insight on what one does when one must move, but there doesn't seem to be a good move available on the board.
1: Well, there's a few things there to say. One is, in a chess context, the key is not to get into zugzwang. It's it's, it's a sign of it's 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 the first. It's like that that old joke about. Somebody asking for directions, you know, I want to get to this other place. And they'll say, well, in that case, I wouldn't have started from here. You know, it's like too late. You're already there. So in the same way with with zugzwang, it's like you want to avoid it, first of all. When you're in zugzwang, usually it means you're decisively busted, that you have to move, but the move will destroy your position. There is, however, something called reciprocal zugzwang, which is a slightly more complex notion. And that's where whoever's move it is, is busted. So, in other words, you can show the position and say who's winning, and the answer, is, the answer to the question is, what well, depends whose move it is. And now, how does this help us today? Well, it depends what we're talking about, really, and this is a good bridge to the other things we need to speak about. There's the global predicament as a whole, but no single individual is responsible for all of that. No single government is responsible for all of that. So, when we're talking about the position... We have to be clear which game we're talking about because there's the global problematic, but then there's also sort of national conundrums, and then there are social issues, and then there are personal issues. And I would say usually the way out of Zugzwang is to shift the scale. If you feel as though there's a problem at the personal level, shift it to the social level. If you feel there's a problem at the political level, shift it to the geopolitical level. Usually the way out is a kind of shift in the frame of reference like that.
2: Okay. All right. Well, it's probably the right time to bring in what I really want to talk to you about. And that is this idea of the metacrisis. It's a term that has been brought up a few times by other guests, but we haven't done a deep dive into what it's all about. And I've been saving it up (laughs) to, to have this discussion here with you, Jonathan, because you've written about it quite a lot, but you've also spoken to a lot of people who are experts in the realm. I feel that we're definitely at a stage where we feel that all the normal moves The moves that we used to make have been exhausted and the approaches that we've been using to date are just no longer work and they've landed us in a hell of a lot of trouble. At the same time, we need to pull back. We need to see the whole game and see all the intertwining systems and and dynamics and get a meta perspective. I could go first and give you my understanding of it and that might be a good pivot point. You can then correct me from there and build on it. Would that work? I,
1: I wouldn't dream of correcting you, but I'll certainly add if I can. Yes, go ahead.
2: Okay, so my understanding of what the meta-crisis is, is that we've got a whole clusterfuck of various crises you know, generalised AI taking our jobs, potentially our entire existence, nuclear threat that still hovers. We've got the climate crisis or climate emergency or whatever we want to call it. On top of that, there's pandemic risks. And then we've got sort of all this fragmentation and polarisation. The ways that we are dealing with our problems are also part of the problem. And so broadly speaking, the meta crisis is kind of the, the crisis that sits above or below or you know encapsulates all of this the all of itness and essentially what it is is a crisis of our inability to both fathom what the hell's going on because it's so bloody big and also to solve it our consciousness and our systems are incapable of actually working through all of this stuff it's actually also created in the first place and we have an awareness of that and that is the meta crisis. That's the bigger, more broader fundamental crisis. Go forth, Jonathan. Well, I would
1: say, I mean, bravo. I think that's a pretty good summary and good permission to kind of give my own take on it because I think that introduces the field. So I'm conscious to keep all of your audience on board and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking of how to explain this in a way that really carries the weight of it and the depth of it and the importance of it, and that and it values the relevant distinctions, but also keeps it, at some sense, real. So let me say this. In order to make sense of metacrisis, you first of all have to understand, why not just crisis? What's the limitation with crisis? Crisis has a history. The idea of crisis has a history. It goes back to Greek medicine, to the turning point or the bifurcation point of a disease, It also goes back to Latin jurisprudence. It's about making judgments and decisive moments where people are called upon to decide because if you don't decide, something will go wrong. It's also there in kind of Christian end-of-days narratives, Christian judgment. And this is something to do with in a christian context people living with the prospect of judgment as an everyday feature of their consciousness so you sort of live knowing that at any moment you might be judged right these three deep roots in medicine law and theology in greek and latin and in kind of christian thought mean that crisis has really got a very rich heritage so much so that when you look through the history of ideas and see how crisis is used you see it in places like Karl Marx. You see it in Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You see crisis used to describe the economy. You see crisis used as a basis for war. While over time, you begin to see that crisis is a kind of method. Crisis is used by the powers that be to set the agenda and shape the argument and make some things possible that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So that's the important thing to understand. But here's the thing. Crisis has become saturated There are so many crises, right? I could list them, and you've listed some, but even just the juxtaposition of crisis with another term. So we have climate crisis, obesity crisis, cost of living crisis, refugee crisis, economic crisis, financial crisis, political crisis, yada, 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 right? Go on and go on. Lots and lots of crisis. And some people are like, oh, come on, enough crisis already, right? We're done with this. They can't all be problems. And this is why people reach for these prefixes. Now, I should say here that And I'll come to Metacrisis, I'm keeping the audience hanging. The prefixes in in play are there because just talking of crisis is not specific enough. People recognize they're multiplied. Not only have they multiplied, but they're also enduring. Now, this is interesting vis-a-vis the word crisis, because what a crisis is meant to be is quite localized and quite temporary. That's the meaning of crisis. If you have a crisis in your personal life, it's personal to you, and it's something that's meant to come and go. What we have in the world now is something less like a problem, more like a predicament, and less like one thing, more like many things. That's why people are coming along and adding these wo- adding these prefixes to the word crisis. So if you think metacrisis is overly fussy and like arcane and like too much jargon, it's worth reflecting on the fact that it's not by accident that it's there. There's a reason people have reached for meta crisis, right? Before I get to meta crisis, quickly allow me to say two big words that have also arise around this time. One is permacrisis, the other is polycrisis. Permacrisis was the Collins Dictionary word of the year in 2022, and that basically means crisis without end, indefinite crisis. The idea that there is no way of solving this, that actually we're just living now. Crisis is sort of a state of being and that speaks a little bit to some of your work i know about anxiety as superpower you know there's something about this is not going away this is part of who we are and so on there's also polycrisis, which is actually a much more serious like opponent for metacrisis, because polycrisis has become very, very popular as a term. It's already taking hold in academia, in philanthropy, in politics, in journalism. And that's the placeholder term to describe the global predicament. I think the French call it le pro- la problématique mondiale, or there's a word in Scots which is cluster barach, which means kind of like Clusterfuck, basically. But it just means like lots and lots of problems. Omni-shambles was there recently. There's the old German term, weltsmirch is like world pain. Anyway, these are all there. But the problem is, none of them really deal with interiority. And this is why I think metacrisis is necessary and also not yet fully understood. Because what the word meta does is more than one thing. And it's really important that it's more than one thing. Because people want to quickly define it and say, well, it just means meta. Meta just means after. But it doesn't just mean after. Meta can mean after. It can also mean within. It can also mean between. And it sometimes even means that kind of beyond. And that's quite important for meta crisis, because the crisis has become all of these things. So if you ask me for my quick, my lo- I can give you a longer definition, but my quick definition is that the meta crisis is the multifaceted delusion arising from the spiritual and material exhaustion of modernity? And the reason that's the definition is that crisis is actually a structural feature of modernity. In other words, the whole idea of the modern world, how it was built, was one crisis after the other, crisis followed by solution, crisis followed by solution. This is how the political economy and powers that be mobilized themselves. But then, What we're facing today is a sense of modernity ending. And then the question is, where does it end, right? Does it end in a big war? Well, not really. The first place it ends, if you think about modernity, it's not just, as someone once put it, ancient Egyptians in airplanes, right? It's not that we stay like cavemen or like, it's not like there's no human evolution and there's just new technology. We also evolve culturally. So the first place modernity ends is in our own hearts and minds. And this is why meta-crisis is well described and also why you described it well in terms of our capacity to make sense breaking down and it's not just our capacity to make sense breaking down it's also our capacity to value our sense of what's of value beginning to break down difficult to judge between things what's better
0: For a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.
2: You mentioned modernism, and of course that brings about a bit of a discussion that I think is important to have here about Modernism, what that was, postmodernism, which I think many listeners would be familiar with. Many of us grew up in a postmodernist era. We're sort of still in it. And then, of course, metamodernism, which is the realm that we are moving into. Some might say we're already there by virtue of what's happening. Could you just do a, a fairly brief overview of how those three kind of epochs intertwine?
1: Okay, so I should say that it's a bit of a moot point whether they're really best thought of as epochs. So because they all coexist, they all carry on. In the world today, depending on where you are and who you are, you could be living in a pre-modern context, an indigenous context, a modern context, a postmodern context, or a metamodern context. So it's not as though they're sequentially one after the other. It's they're co-arising and related to each other in various ways that said if you want a quick rough and ready definition of what is meant by metamodern it's roughly how the internet makes you feel right that's the quick version metamodernism is the study of how the internet makes you feel now that might seem trivial but it's not at all trivial feelings have cosmic significance they're they're what what makes life worth living and not just that the internet is our main information system platforms are now where cultural culture is reconstituted and where the world is brought into being so how the internet makes people feel is how the world is brought into being it's not at all a trivial matter and the claim is that what the metamodern sort of sensibility is about is first of all a a very very much a planetary context that we we carry the planet in our pocket in some non-trivial sense and not just that but also It's getting beyond the kind of optimism of modernism, which is things will just keep getting better and progressing, but it's also getting a bit beyond the kind of perspective taking and critique of postmodernism that that is lost in critique, that gets a bit overly attached to how everything is falling apart and bad. Metamodernism is keen to stay in touch with some of the deeper sources, some of which are even pre-modern or indigenous, that life really does have meaning, that things really do matter, that actually it's not just all about It's not all relative. It's not all perspective. There really is a good, true, and beautiful. It's just that we can no longer see it naively. We recognize that it may come through patterns of power or hierarchy. So metamodernism is an altogether richer cultural code, which in theory at least contains the best of what came before it.
2: If I can summarise that, and also bring in a little bit of what I've learned from reading about it over the last couple of years, modernism is the sort of the era that saw a lot of technological advances. It was, it's, and it's very much about rational, objective assertions. Postmodernism, of course, and I studied all of this when I was at university, was about pulling things apart and saying, well, it depends on the perspective, everything's subjective and so on. So everything became very fluid and it was about not really taking a concrete position. Metamodernism, and I think this is where it can get really helpful to, to, to see the worth of a metamodernist outlook. It goes, well, none of these theories in the, in and of themselves are right. But what we can do is pull, cherry pick the best of them all. And so it's about actually being artful with how we do things. It's about being relative where it's appropriate, being very material and concrete, because a big part of postmodernism, and we're seeing this with the, the woke backlash, is that, well, what is the position? we've got to actually have some truisms we've got to have some moral certainties in this world to be able to to move forward and to actually make the big decisions that are required of the world today and so metamonism is an attempt to bring together those those the best of the best of plus more to decision making processes and problem solving
1: yeah that's that's a good summary and i would I would add to it just as an illustration I'm not certain whether your listeners know Barbara Cartland novels when I refer to that but they're kind of they're considered these sort of classic schmaltzy romantic kind of novels. And I mention that because quite a big theorist Umberto Eco also a great literary giant. He once was trying to describe the postmodern condition. And the reason I mention it is that he describes it in a way that's also a little bit metamodern. So let me just run it by you. It's just a little extract where he says, "I think of the postmodern condition as a man who is madly in love with a woman, but he cannot say to her, I love you madly, because these words have already been uttered by Barbara Cartland. There is a solution to his predicament, however. He can say, as Barbara Cartland would have put it, I love you madly. Now, there's quite a lot in that, because on the one hand, it's just a joke. On the other hand, what he's getting at is that the postmodern condition is this kind of cultural saturation in which nothing is new. Everything feels like it's been done before. And what's interesting about that, though, is that he still says something meaningful. And this is why it's a little bit metamodern. It's not just lost in, I can't say I love you, that's silly. You know, he doesn't say that. He does say I love you, but he says it through the medium of a Barbara Cartland reference. But the metamodern approach would actually be just to say I love you and to know that the other person is aware that that's been said thousands of times often not meant, often in a very slushy context, but it's still heartfelt and real and you don't feel the need to apologise for it, but you're not unaware, you're not naive. You know that it's been said before and that it can be said falsely.
2: Mm. I often think about modernism as being, well, Trump. Trumpism is very modernist. It's that very black-white bifurcating sort of thinking and you could also say that there's some um, modern stuff going on there as well in some of the overlay. You've then got postmodernism, and I think I've heard you describe Seinfeld as being a really great example of postmodernism, where it's there's lots of irony, sarcasm, and so on, but not really any concrete, tangible points that point to what life is all meant to be about. And I think that's a it's, that's a great way of delineating. And then I also think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, I think of where we're at with the woke versus anti-woke cultural war discussions as being sort of Fairly meta modern, at least in the way that we're having to discuss things and and realize that they don't lie left or right any longer. You can have people who are extremely anti-woke, who are very liberal thinking. There's there's this kind of whole mush-up that's happening now. And I think it's taking some meta-modernist thought, or it will require it, to actually wade our way through it and find a resolution at the end of this.
1: I think that might be the case. I, I think it's also important to understand that culture is a very, very important, but not everything. There's also technology, economics, and so on. So the reason I mentioned that is, when I said that the metamodernism is about how the internet makes you feel as a shorthand, and only as a shorthand, what I'm getting at is that the internet is also what creates this kind of cultural context. So the so-called culture wars are synthetic, manufactured. And they serve certain interests, often very powerful interests. Uh, and, and many people end up spectating in them and trying to be part of them. And they give rise to real effects. People do end up, you know, people lose their jobs at universities because they said the wrong thing. Or someone feels completely alienated because they're not seen for who they are. It has real emotional impact. But the structure of the, of the cultural conundrums are often manufactured. They're often there serving something. So one example of this that comes to mind, it's quite a good one. A few months back, maybe six months or so, Andrew Tate, the notorious misogynist, I think some would say far right, although I think the political spectrum's broken. But anyway, for now, far right, sort of Pied Piper of sorts for young men. He came out trying to provoke Greta Thunberg by telling her about all the cars he had and he said, you know, this is one of my cars. I'm filling it up now. I've got lots more of them showing off, but deliberately provoking her, right? And Greta Thunberg came back with a famously, you know, elegant put down about, it included the hashtag small dick energy, which was, which was considered very, very funny. And it was it was retweeted many, many, many thousands, I think even millions of times. Now, I mentioned this example because a lot of people read that and thought, oh, go on, Greta, you sorted him out there. Um, How embarrassing for Tate. But that's a complete misreading of the situation. It's true that at one level, he tried to provoke her. She was more than his match. She put him down. It was embarrassing at some level. But actually, the internet works on the basis of those kind of fights. The the so-called internet of beefs is that people watch these spectacles of people laying into each other, and it actually suits both parties. Andrew Tate's followership would have gone up significantly as a result of that. He got lots and lots of attention, which is exactly what he wants. So the internet is actually pretending to be this place of benign discourse and debate. But actually, when you look at it more closely, it's not that kind of sphere at all. It's a sphere where power is being heavily concentrated in one or two areas, and it's being concentrated on the basis of conflict and the perpetuation of conflict. And so I say that in response to your answer about metamodernism, because it's true that the metamodern is is somehow available to us to sort of find a more complex response. But it's also true that the metamodern condition is one of having to contend with this stuff.
2: Yes, it's it's not just a solution. It's also a description of of where we're at. I want to take a slight deviant direction here. Another thing that you write about a lot is the fact that we're between two worlds and There's a collapse occurring with the old way. So all of the systems, particularly the financial, economic systems and political systems that defined our world, particularly from about the 70s and 80s onwards, are no longer able to contend with the conditions that they created, you know, in and of themselves. So it's not able to cope with the technological advances. It's not able to cope with the fact that we've wound up consuming our own ecosystem, nor this idea of the rivalrous systems. And that's something that I think a lot of us are aware of, that the old way just can't hold any longer, yet the new consciousness, the new way of doing things hasn't arrived yet. And so we're in this in betweenness. And so I suppose, in many ways, it's a fork in the road, road moment, which is exactly what a crisis is. It gives you the opportunity to define something better, you know, or it, it, it spells our absolute demise. We're kind of in a position where we're going to go one of two ways. And I think a lot of us are aware of that. I am wondering. What your thoughts are on this, because you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on the subject. Is a complete overhaul required? Because a lot of meta-modernist thinking talks about this: a new consciousness and a completely new way of seeing education, a new way of talking and making sense. You know, it's it's about an absolute overhaul in all the ways that we do things. Is it required? And if so, can we do it in time? Because I think there's, you know, time is of the essence, you know, from a climate perspective, it really is sort of seven to eight years in which we're going to have to do a turnaround. I think AI, it's it's probably even shorter. Or am I missing something fundamental here?
1: Well, thanks for the question. And it's in some ways the question. And I think my quick answer would be it's It's not so much that you're missing something. It's more that we have a greater degree of choice about how we see things than we like to think. It's not that there is one fact of the matter. We have to sort of choose our frame of reference. And there are many for whom the crisis frame really doesn't cut it, who feel that it's the wrong place to start. Let me stay with the between worlds frame for a second. So th- th- this expression, a time between worlds, I owe to my friend Zach Stein, who wrote a book called Education in a Time Between Worlds. But of course, the notion of betweenness is a broader notion. It's the liminal in anthropology which, by the way, in anthropology is quite elegant because it's it's to do with an eth- ethnographer who's studying like a tribe or an indigenous community of some kind who is neither, he's there for long enough that he's no longer in his own culture nor is he part of the other culture. So it gets to the sense of betweenness. And a lot of people feel that way today. My colleague Ivo Mensch said, collectively we're living a life that no longer exists. And I sort of know what he means. I, here in London, i am a father of two boys, I have a mortgage, I'm, I'm basically a complicit bourgeois citizen. I'm living the life that is not sustainable, that is collapsing around us. And yet I find I'm so entrapped in it that I there's a sort of dissonance between a lot of what I say in my work and how I live day to day. Do we need to change everything? Well, this is right at the heart of where my current inner life is because if you ask me intellectually, I say yes the converging pressures that give rise to the metacrisis call for a different kind of cultural code. They call for a different metaphysics, different view of the world, different view of what life is for, who we are, and so on. Big picture transformation, yes. However, if you ask me more pragmatically, politically, as somebody who cares about the day-to-day life of me and people around me, I'm less revolutionary. I'm more small c conservative i distrust grand revolutionary schemes i am not sure it would lead to a better world at all i think what we're looking at is a need to really reckon with the fact that conventional wisdom is no longer wise but at the same time to temper our revolutionary impulses and recognize that there's a kind of hurry slowly injunction perspectiva the organization i run we call ourselves an urgent 100-year project for that reason. It's both urgent and long-term. Because what's going on is you can't overnight change who we are. You know, We have habit energy, we have expectations, we have social norms. These things are not going to very rapidly change. They can change. And I think that there's certain hope that people will begin to see themselves differently, see the world differently. You, there's a lot of evidence of this in people under 30, not being as economically motivated as prior generations, although there would be a sociological critique of that, saying that's just because they can't afford anything. So, I mean, there's it, always a counterpoint. It's always a complex picture. But if you're asking me, does the metacrisis mean some radical reappraisal of what a human being is, what we're living for, for, at a scale of about 8 billion-plus people, I want to say yes and no. I want to say yes because without that kind of transformation we're not going to contend with ecological collapse, we're not going to manage technological development adequately, and we're not going to create a new economy that serves eight billion people instead of being plundered for the super rich. But if you ask me more pragmatically I want to say no because it's very hard to change the world at that scale without extraordinary violence that really you have to bring people with you. If you're any kind of Democrat, if you're any kind of Democrat who believes that you need consent and, and agreement, you'll want to persuade people and bring them with you. So it starts with things like economic growth at the moment is still a uh, public policy imperative in most developed democracies. If that begins to change and you actually have people who saying, I don't mind that we're not growing anymore. you know, for, To give you a quick example, in the UK, you know, we're facing a kind of low-level recession. We've had to deal with Brexit and the fallout of that. We've had the pandemic. The economy is really struggling. We have high inflation, high interest rates. However, we're not poorer than we were like 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, we weren't doing that badly. And so there's a sort of perspective shift. It's like we don't have to keep on constantly growing for our day-to-day well-being. We only have to do that because of macroeconomic indicators and the political pressures they create. What does all of that mean? It means this is the modern predicament it's both and it's like you've got to you f- feel them both simultaneously reform and revolution and it's then it becomes a matter of context this is why i one last thought before you come back the the problem of scale is that we now live with a big schism between our sphere of concern and our sphere of agency right our sphere of concern is the whole world the climate crisis ai and so on our sphere of agency is our immediate surrounds our organization our network and the gap between what we and the we is very problematic because it means 101 things can do and what we want to do is huge so somehow we have to keep the big picture in the context where we're trying to get to the kind of vision the, the plan but at the same time we have to be quite modest and human and humble and kind and careful about how we go about that in our day-to-day life
2: Mm, the, the both and lesson there, I think is really, really fundamental. And I'll come back to that just in a moment. But I feel the same way. I feel very conflicted. I feel that revolution is required. I feel that a complete about face is required if we're going to to shift in the way that Everybody's saying we're going to have to shift. At the same time, I know that it's not going to be possible. We're not going to be able to steer this massive ship, you know, 180 degrees, do an about face in the time required. And it's it's so, so difficult to find a place to land in that schism. For me, though, and I suspect it's the same for you, you've then just got to go deeply spiritual to be able to cope with that and to see something broader and bigger and more beautiful to, to what is going on. And I think that's probably also speaks to, you've written an essay on this, it was part of your spiritualism project, I think. And it was titled, Why We've Never Had It So Good, Yet Everything Has To Change. And it refers to this, this sort of Stephen Pinker et al theories about how, you know, global poverty, you know, is down, starvation rates are down, there are less wars. And yep, we can add all of those things up, although I wonder whether those figures are about to shift. But the point is, for most of us, it misses something really fundamental. And that is, there's a deep sense of despair, there's a lack of meaning, you know, a lot of people in this realm are calling it the lack of meaning crisis. And I think that's at the heart of of all of this. So as we sort of wind up this conversation, I would love for you to talk to where the spiritual element comes into play here. Because I know in myself, I have to pull right back and see the beautiful dynamic of all of it that's going on and see that there's a flow that makes sense, that all of this probably adds up to something. And it feels that even if it's painful, if it makes sense, then there's joy to be found there.
1: We're so lucky to be alive. We're so very lucky to be alive. And if we're alive and well, all the more lucky. I find it really helps to remember that we live on a planet. It sounds strange, but we don't really get that day to day. You just close your eyes and think for a second how bizarre it is that we're in this cosmic context, not just across the the oceans and the continents and the eight odd billion people and all of the more than human world there, the the mushrooms, the, the animals, the uh, trees, and so on, that, that were part of that life, right? That's one thing, that we're this ex- extraordinary miracle. But more than that, as human beings, we've developed the capacity for language, for consciousness, and culture, which we don't know. There could be many such places across the galaxies, but it might be that we're unique. It's also possible that this is a, a rare achievement, and a, all, all the more precious for that. And that applies both to the planet, but also to each individual life. And I think I find the meaning in, in in several different places, but one of them is in finding your own uniqueness. If you do this wrongly, it becomes a kind of narcissism of small differences. You know, like I like two and three quarter sugars in my tea or whatever, because I'm so important. You know, not like that. It's not, it's not like something that you do. It's something about finding your place in your historical context. The meaning comes from looking deeply at, we call it realization, three meanings of the term. One is what's going on, the realization of what's happening, right? To contend with that. That's a kind of encounter, an existential encounter. What's going on in the world? Wake up to it. The second is to realize the self. Who are you today? What are you responsible for? What are you being asked to become? What is your calling? What do you feel drawn to? And move into that. And the third is, what are you going to realize in the world? What are you going to make manifest? What is your role to bring into being? And somehow when you focus on these questions of sort of broadly getting real, becoming real, and making real, life becomes all the more vital, all the more alive. And I think in that context, there's a there's a whole question of, what it's all about more broadly. You know, do you feel that we are an accident, that that this this sort of history and evolution that gave rise to your life is just a fluke? Or do you feel there's some deeper cosmic purpose unfolding through you and through all of us? Personally, I feel the latter. And, and I feel much more comfortable thinking in terms of consciousness as a real feature of life, value as an intrinsic property of the universe, the sacred being something deeply important and real. And I don't mind bringing those things into being, but we all have to find our own way in that context. And I think it's the only way really to actually be awake to the problems of the world while also living a life that makes sense in the context that you have. Not to to tire yourself out, burn yourself out, trying to solve every problem because you can't, but to find what's yours to carry and carry
2: it. That's a really lovely way of putting things. I want to finish with something that, kind of relates to that and it goes back to what you said before about this and uh, rather than this but. And I think there's a term that you've used where you've you've listed a bunch of sensibilities. I think it was on your Substack post. You've just joined Substack. And you use the term post-tragic as a sort of a defining sensibility of this new era. And it's this idea that knowing life as tragic And beautiful, meaningful and purposeful. It it brings to mind, you know, Leonard Cohen's line, the crack is, you know, where the light gets in. And I think Khalil Gibran in The Prophet writes about the deeper the sorrow that's carved into your being, the more joy your being can contain. And I'm wondering if this is where you and all of us land here, that the crisis is the point it's going to be our grappling with it. It's going to be this meta crisis grappling that takes us to the joy that could, in and of itself, save us. You know, this sort of deeper understanding. I mean, the meta crisis is at the heart of things—a sort of a spiritual, a spiritual crisis. It's it's a really a, a sort of lack of meaning, a sort of a, a disconnect from from the matrix of what really matters to us as humans. And so maybe these crises maybe the meta crisis is the thing ironically I mean it's all very meta that then in fact saves us by very virtue of what it's going to demand of us. Is this is this the reckoning? Is this what this reckoning is about? Will it bring us to where we need to be in the final in the final wash up? I mean that's my hope, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are Jonathan.
1: I, I think I share a lot of your sensibility on that question. I think there's a feeling that there's something deeply meaningful about our plight today. The the sense of watching the world somehow unravel and trying to find our place in that is deeply meaningful. It's not an accident that although war is horrific and I've never been part of one, I've never experienced the gruesome horror of it. I wouldn't want to pretend I knew what it's like. But I know that many report as a deeply meaningful experience. It's not pleasant. It's not you know, not happy, but it's intensely meaningful because you know that something really matters you're, when you're fighting for something and you're defending your comrades' lives and so on. We're a little bit like that today in a more secular day to day context. Those who are awake to the problems of the world do have this sense of responsibility to respond. Not everybody sees it the same way, some are not really contending with bigger than self problems. Some are, you know, have their own problems. It's a luxury in some ways to be able to think about the problems of the world at scale, a privilege even. But the response to that privilege has to be one of mobilizing your resources, such as they are, financial, intellectual, social, whatever they may be, to wake others up to the challenge of changing how we live at a scale that makes a difference. Is that our saving grace? I'm not sure. But it it, it does mean that life, the so-called meaning crisis I'm less sure about. Personally, I think the problem with the meaning crisis is often a, a sort of a surfeit of meaning. That there's a kind of everything's in some ways too meaningful. It's, it can hardly bear it. It's just there's too much going on, too much to think and feel. I'd like to think though that the predicament, the the the, the being the first the first generation who day by day in our portable electronic device can watch the the sort of world initially unravel and then perhaps begin to reassemble itself in a way that is better. I'd love to see that happen. Honestly, I'm not sure it will. And the post-tragic notion that you began the question with is a way of being a bit tougher about that. It's not that everything will turn out okay. Much that you love will die. There will be suffering, darkness, unnecessary grief tragedy of all kinds but the point of the post tragic sensibility is that that doesn't render life meaningless or lacking in beauty it's it's our chances to sort of be awake to all of it that somehow the challenge is to feel the tragedy but feel beyond it too not to be lost in the the pre-tragic which is that everything's going to be great everything's fine stop stop complaining the tragic is oh my god i can hardly move everything's so terrible and then the post tragic is something like, yeah, you're right, things are really bad, but things are also good. And now and now you have to get to work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good note to end on. You know, I think the this and approach is is probably <laughs> the surest ground to to stand on at the moment because, you know, there is so much going on and we you know, we'd be we'd be mad and we'd be very saddened to fight it. We've got to be in it and there's the choice there's the choice there to find find it beautiful and to find it meaningful. Jonathan, thank you so much for having this discussion. It meandered. It was, it was meta, but that was the whole point. So yes, I'll put in the show notes where people can find more of your musings on all of this. It's important stuff. And thank you for, for, for leading many of these discussions.
1: Pleasure. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on.
2: With some of these wild episodes, I land at the end of the conversation and I truly have nothing more to add. And I guess this is one such episode. I will perhaps point you to some extra listening that sort of speaks to some of the themes that we discuss in the conversation. As I said in the introduction, previous episodes on sense-making and Indigenous knowledge systems speak to metamodernist practices and mindsets. And if you want to access more about left versus right brain thinking, The episode I did a while back with the neuroscientist Jill Bolte-Taylor, the woman who had a stroke and went fully into her right brain, and she did a very famous TED talk on it. It's a great one, and possibly my favorite interview that I've done to date here on Wild. Again, it's all going to be in the show notes, so you can just go and get the links there. But I'll also just reiterate that tool, if you can call it that, that Jonathan shared for finding peace in it all. He talks about a sort of a reckoning with our realness by finding our own uniqueness in the world, although not in a narcissistic sense. There's three parts to it. He says that the first is to get real with what's going on in the world. So learn about it. Engage in it. Don't be scared to actually confront the truth. Then get real with who you are. What's your calling? Why are you here? And then thirdly, get real with what it is that you will realise in this lifetime. What is it that you uniquely can bring into the world? And then go and do it. And just a reminder, a crisis, as Jonathan explains, is not a catastrophe per se. It's a fork in the road moment where we must decide It's defined as the necessity for judgment in a state of suspension between worlds. And we can go either way, right? It's a fork in the road moment. And as I've heard someone say, I think I read it somewhere on Perspectiva, to experience a crisis is to inhabit a world that is temporarily up for grabs. I think that's a good thought to to leave you with. All right, keep it wild. Keep giving me feedback over at Substack. That's where I interact with people these days. Again, link in the show notes. And a reminder to my UK friends, you can pre-order this One Wild Precious Life and get it a week early. Um, the link's in the show notes. Go to Waterstones or Amazon, their online sites. I have it there right now. Speak to you next week.